This morning at seven, so bright and so early. Five novels later, sewn up in a sack. Welcome to Simply Listen, Women in Dialogue. I'm Sumin Kim, and I hope you're having a beautiful day. I'm excited to be talking today with composer Lori Leitman, who has written music for more than 300 art songs and other vocal works. Lori studied flute at YSM, earning a Master of Music degree in 1976, but found her creative voice in setting words to music. I'm eager to talk with Lori about growing up in a musical family, accidentally becoming a composer, to use Lori's word, finding a process, and being a woman in music. Welcome, Lori. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, so I heard you got the second shot recently. Yes, I was very fortunate to book appointments and uh, also fortunate to have no reaction. Yeah, that's uh, really exciting. Thank you. You're probably you know tired of talking about the pandemic, but I just must ask you, as yes. a vocal composer, how's it been for you? Ah, well, almost everything of mine that was supposed to have been produced, or actually everything of mine that was supposed to have been produced in the last year has been postponed. I am mm -hmm. um, The next thing that is happening is supposed to happen actually live next month in Indianapolis with Indianapolis Opera, but everything else has been rescheduled to 2022. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to resuming um, life sort of as we knew it, but I hope that it will be a little less hectic than it used to be. <laughs> I've gotten used to not traveling. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I do appreciate certain things that came out of this pandemic. You know, I do appreciate living slowly and finding my own pace. It's really forced all of us musicians to like really find what works for us. Right. And for me, the time at home really gave me time to focus on completing works that I knew I had to complete, and this gave me the extra time to really delve into that. So. Yeah, I think a lot of musicians launched the projects that they've always been wanting to do, like making their websites or commissioning new things, doing virtual collaborations with other people. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been really exciting. I really do appreciate that the world is the smallest place it's ever been. I am having a marimba piece premiered, and you know the performer is in Baltimore. I think that's something that's very special. Absolutely. I, you know, next week I'm doing a lecture at the Academy of Music in Slovenia. Wow. So <laughs> I, that never would have happened pre-pandemic, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think we're just looking for ways to make connections. Absolutely. I heard that one of the projects that's been postponed was your opera. Ah, Uncovered. Uncovered is based on a memoir by Leah Lacks, and Leah is my contemporary, and she grew up in Dallas, and she was gay, but at the time that we grew up, people weren't so open about their sexual identities. And I think that because of that, she was finding a way to maybe hide her identity, and she entered into um, the Hasidic Jewish sect, which is ultra-Orthodox. Leah was married at age 19 in an arranged marriage to a man. And over the next decade, she had seven children and one abortion when her life was threatened. And she remained in that community for the next 30 years, for 30 years ent entirely, until she found the courage to leave. And she wrote this memoir about her life, which when I read it, I found entirely fascinating. I had some contact with her and I wrote to her and I asked if she might be amenable towards creating 
a libretto for me. And she was. And during this past year, I was able to finish it, orchestrate it. And um, it will premiere. I pushed the premiere back until April 2022. And the premiere will be at Utah State in Logan, Utah. And then it will be followed by an East Coast premiere with City Lyric Opera in New York. And then there are other companies that will be presenting it as well. So it looks like it has a good beginning to it. Wonderful. What's the instrumentation? It is scored only for instrumental quartet, and that is clarinet, violin, cello, and piano. That's really interesting. Is there a specific reason why you chose that quartet of instruments? That particular instrumental combination I've used before, I've used it in my Holocaust Oratorio Vedum. And I find that it gives just the right flavor and uh, the, um, the right amount of color. You can make a lot happen with those four instruments, yet it's economical for an opera company to produce. City Lyric actually recorded one scene during the pandemic uh, last summer. It was very nerve wracking because there were so many precautions that had to be taken and they built these little sort of individual booths out of plastic for each singer and they aired it out and they, you know, used Clorox wipes. And um, this particular scene is called the mikvah, which is uh, the ritual bath used in Orthodox Judaism uh, when women are preparing for sexual relations. Actually, due to the nature of the scene and the subject matter, being in these sort of isolated booths that sort of shimmered when the light hit it was just perfect. And it was so thrilling to actually hear it, not on my computer or in my head, but by real singers who brought it to life so beautifully. It's such a special moment for us composers when we hear our work being performed live for the first time. I would imagine it to be a certain way, but then when, when real people play it, being yeah. you know, completely different, or we would make something new out of the collaboration. Absolutely. I'm always changing my music after I hear it, because often singers, they might need extra time here and there, and you don't really know that until you hear it in the voice, I think. Yeah. Speaking of singers, I heard you have a special connection with soprano Lauren Wagner. Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> she's she's the one that forced me to write songs. Right. So uh first I'll say I grew up as a flutist. I my whole goal was to play flute in a in a symphony. And when I went to Yale, that's when I got exposed to uh composition. All of my friends were composers. It was one particular course at Yale that I took. Uh, in writing music for film and theater taught by Frank Lewin that was inspirational to me. And and I use all of the techniques that I learned in that class to write songs, because for me, it's the same thing. I'm writing dramatic music to Mm -hmm. express the moods of a poem or a libretto. It's the same kind of process that you would use in film music or incidental music. You were at the service of the words. In 1991, Lauren Wagner, who had been my roommate at Interlochen during one of the summers I went there, insisted that I write songs for her debut CD. And I had not written any songs except for one in college. It was not, I wasn't connected to singers. I wasn't connected to poetry. I certainly wasn't connected to songs, but um, I really didn't think that I could do this. And I tried to get out of it, but she wouldn't let me. So (laughs) I started to read a lot of poetry and I found the poetry of Sarah Teasdale and who was an American poet. She was the first one to win a Pulitzer in poetry in 1917. 
And um, her style of poetry was very lyrical, but it also had like a little extra twist. And I thought it was the perfect fit for what I considered to be my style, which is sort of lyrical with a twist. Mm. Uh, and so the first song cycle, I set six of her poems. And the first song was the Metropolitan Tower. And it was so easy for me to write that song that I doubted its worth. I just figured it couldn't be any good if it was that easy for me to produce. Mm. Um, but my husband said, oh no, it's beautiful. And Lauren said it's beautiful. And Frank Lewin, they all said it was beautiful. And so um, I just never stopped writing after that because it was so thrilling for me to discover that I had this uh, innate talent for setting words to music. And that was the start. I think it's such a beautiful way of describing. Um, you said setting words to music is just like writing dramatic music. You're in servitude of the words. Absolutely. Um, and every single aspect of every song comes from the text. Everything is the words out. And the process is very multi-layered. So I uh, start by composing the melody always. Mm -hmm. And I custom craft uh, the vocal line to perfectly fit the words. And I try... That, that usually begins with discovering the rhythm, the natural rhythms of the poem. And I want to make sure that the vocal line suits the human voice so that it's singable and easy and enjoyable for the singer to sing, mm. because that makes it easier for the singer then to communicate the words to the audience. Yeah. I love that you prioritize communicating the words to the audience. I, when I'm writing songs, I would sometimes completely thin out the accompaniment so that the important phrases really come through. Um, are there any specific devices or techniques that you use to put the words at the forefront? Um, I tend to highlight what I consider to be the most important words in a phrase mm -hmm. by musical means, duration or pitch or leaps, so that even if a listener didn't have access to the words, like in a program, if they were listening, they would still be able to grasp the most important parts because they would pop out at you and um, you could get at the essence uh, of the poem. So um, I use the technique of word painting a lot. Mm -hmm. you know. So I use that in both the vocal line and the accompaniment to create this oral portrait of the words mm -hmm. and, and to underscore their meaning. Mm -hmm. I recently wrote a song cycle called the Imaginary Photo Album, mm -hmm. and it was commissioned uh, by the BBC and the Royal Philharmonic Society. Yeah. And the first song is a setting of A.E. Stallings poem, Ultrasound, which addresses a mother's amazement at seeing the first ultrasound of her baby. And the opening words are, what butterfly, brain, soul, or both, unfurls here, pallid as a moth. So the metaphorical image of a butterfly opening and closing its wings and then coming to rest yeah. is depicted in the piano accompaniment, where I have both treble and bass going in opposite directions, almost mm. as if the butterfly's wings were opening and closing before coming to rest. Yeah. You know, so that gave me the, just the words, what butterfly gave me the idea for what kind of accompaniment to use. And the song is very quick in tempo because that underscores the nature of the fetal heartbeat, which goes at about three times the pace of a, an adult heartbeat. Wow. And then I use uh, the piano's deepest registers to suggest mm -hmm. the atmosphere of a cave when she talks about a cave. 
And when um, she speaks about images of vertebrae and strung beads, I use melisma, just as the notes are strung together, just like a vertebrae and just like beads. So I'm always looking for a way to take that visual image, because I often think about poems as films, miniature films, and turn it into a dramatic musical representation of the words. Yeah, I'm also curious to know, um, how does your process of writing songs translate to writing larger works, such as opera? The process for my longer works is basically identical uh, to the songs, although in an opera, of course, you have the issue of characters. I often try to create distinct musical gestures for each character based on their psyches, so that if somebody is very bossy, you know, you may want to have that person repeating things all the time, you Mm -hmm. know. And another example comes from my opera with David Mason, The Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. And Hester Prynne is the central character, and she is the moral core of the story. And her ability to be true to herself uh, was in great contrast to the rest of the uh, society. Yeah. And to, il- to illustrate this, to begin with, uh, she's a coloratura soprano. So her voice floats above everybody else. Um, you know, it's, it's separate. And that shows her separation from her society. And I also use a lot of irregular phrase lanes to show her individuality, as opposed to the very regular rhythms and meters that are found when the chorus of townspeople are singing, for example, yeah. because they're just followers, you know, and so they're just, it's very, very metrical. So I'm always looking for ways to depict what's going on. It's really fascinating what you said about layering these interpretations through these different dimensions of the piece. Right. And, you know, it's just like you're giving your own reading of this poetry. Exactly. Um, So when you find text, do you find yourself being more drawn to texts that talk about experiences that are similar to yours? I've noticed that you use a lot of texts by women, such as Emily Dickinson, Susan B. Anthony, and you know Sarah Teasdale you mentioned, and then also the opera, Leah Lex. So yeah, I'm curious about how you find your materials. Well, it depends from song cycle to song cycle. Everything is commissioned. I have said a lot of poets, male and female. A lot of the female poets that I have set, I had been introduced to by a friend of mine, Dr. Adelaide Whitaker, who commissioned many, many song cycles for me and often with the goal of me setting poetry by women. I've also set Joyce Sutphin repeatedly. She is the mm-hmm. current poet laureate of Minnesota and Sylvia Plath and Alice Dewar Miller, who was a great influence in trying to help women get the vote at the turn of the century, and Margaret Atwood, and Toy Derricotte, and Elizabeth Bishop, and of course, as you mentioned, Leah Lax. Mm -hmm. But I've also set a lot of um, poems about the Holocaust, and several by women, and Rana Singer, who was a German Jew who escaped the Nazis, and Karen Gershon, who went to England as part of the Kinder Transport and Nobel laureate Nellie Sachs, and Selma Mirbaum Isinger, who was a young Jewish woman who perished in a Nazi labor camp. I feel like it's incredibly important to tell these stories, which are not at all like my story, to educate people about that tragedy in our history. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful to Music of Remembrance, which was founded and led by Minna Miller in Seattle, which performs works from the Holocaust and has been instrumental in commissioning a number of works about the Holocaust. Amazing. 
I love that you are committed to telling these stories of great importance. Yeah, I have another question for you. So you're a flutist. Does that background affect your writing in any ways? Yeah, I've given this some thought. I'm sure that the fact that I grew up um, using a melody instrument has helped me shape my concept of what a good melody is. And studying counterpoint at Yale also helped shape my idea of what a good melody is. But the the biggest lessons came from Lauren Wagner, who mm. who taught me two things: what goes up must come down. And good singer is a happy singer. <laughs> so I'm always willing to write new notes or take things in a different direction because I'm more for the drama of the piece and keeping the singer happy. And I think the fact that my mother was also a singer and sang a lot of songs around the house was very influential in me understanding a uh, setting of words. Yeah. Hearing you say that, it makes a lot of sense to me that setting words to music just came to you naturally, even though it's not something you've done a lot in the past. I think it's these very first musical memories that kind of form our musical DNA. I think I have also given this a lot of thought. I was an accident. I came <laughs> way after my two sisters. And I think my parents were then 36 and 38 when I was mm -hmm. born, which in today's world is young to have children. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in those days, um, it was old to have children. And I think they had, they certainly had less energy, you know, as one gets more tired <laughs> as one ages. And um, my mom used to put me in front of a record player and I used to listen incessantly to Peter and the Wolf and mm. Bong Bongo the Bear, all these kiddie albums that were very popular in the 1950s. And I remember being thrilled by them, by the stories and song. And then I didn't think about that for ages, you know, mm -hmm. maybe the next 50 years until I thought, oh, you know, it was that early introduction to story and song and the thrill of hearing the words brought to life, you know, that yeah. I think had the biggest impact on me, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of accidents, you've described yourself as an accidental composer. How was your journey of finding your way into composition? After graduation, I was very conflicted. You know, was I a flutist or was I a composer? I didn't, I did both, you know, but I didn't have any degree in uh, composition and I still don't. And I was very worried when I started out, was I a quote, real composer or not? You know, I was, I had no confidence. I thought people would think my music was stupid because it was very lyrical. And when I went to school, there was, um, I'd say a prejudice against anything that was melodic or lyrical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that the world in composition has changed and you have complete freedom now to do whatever is best suited to your own abilities. So that's, yeah. that's great. And uh, I was also influenced by um, um, this Jewish philosophy called Tikkun Olam. At the first, the first song I wrote was in 1991. And at the time, my first son was preparing for his bar mitzvah. Uh, and that's when I was first introduced to that concept. And it means to repair the world, you know, to that each person should do what they can to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And I felt that what I wanted to do is add beauty to the world. And that's what I've been trying to do. You know, and I felt that with my abilities to make lyrical melodies, that, that was the best thing I could do is to, to write songs. Then there's this question of how do you get it into the world? Of course, I had Lauren, who was a great proponent, singing my music and people heard her and then they liked the songs and they sang it. So it was never 
it just seemed to follow its own path. But I would often go to concerts uh, by singers and I would try to go backstage afterwards and introduce myself and say, I have these songs and could I please send you my songs? And, you know, they would say yes. And then I never hear from anybody, but a a turning point came in 2000 and I went to hear Randy Scarlatta, great baritone sing at the Kennedy Center. And I went backstage and I introduced myself and he actually had heard of me. It was like, whoa, you know, that's crazy. <laughs> and then yeah. um, um, the great uh, collaborative pianist, Warren Jones, also has been a champion of my music. And that's been um, very wonderful. He's been on so many of my CDs and I am so appreciative. And, you know, I've met so many interesting people through my music and the stories that I've told. Yeah you know, that I feel like I have a very large musical family. And I love that. I, yeah. yeah. I really love what you said about, you know, your, your contribution to the world is, you know, adding beauty to the world. Hopefully. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do really think that sometimes composers kind of get lost in the academic world. Even I still feel the pressure to whenever I write a triad, I'm like, wait, I shouldn't be do- writing triads. Yeah. It's too pretty sounding or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Some people are looking for something edgy, you know. I, I'm not edgy. You know, I write, quote, beautiful, beautiful music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned the turning point in your career. And as a composition student, I have so many questions. Just simply, how do you become a composer in the real world? Ah. And- yeah. You know, you've talked about going to backstages and meeting people, making connections, sending songs. Um, yeah. But what would you say, what's your advice for, for composition students? Yeah, well, you know, um, make friends with really good performers who are going to have good careers. <laughs> 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 That's number one. And, you know, develop your own, you know, stable of artists that you connect with and that connect with your music so that, you know, you have a good rapport with them. You can speak to them. They understand you because everybody, you know, some people uh, tend towards different things, you know, just like composers have strengths, artists have strengths as well. So find yeah. your people. Really, uh, if, if you're working with singers, you know, find great singers, but also listen to them. And I think that goes for instrumentalists as well. You know, always be flexible too and be willing to change anything that you can to make the piece better suited to the instrument. I mean, even now, I have one piece, uh, an Emily Dickinson poem I said in 1996, that's become one of my most often performed songs. It's called If I, and um, I have a couple of different versions of it. And I was doing an earlier um, video interview during the pandemic and with this uh, wonderful singer in DC, Tracy Cox. And she was performing it and I heard her performance and she did something different than what I wrote. Wow. And I thought, I thought, oh, I, I had this mal- a fainting Robin is one of the phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sang fainting Robin. And I thought, oh, did I write it that way? I had to go back and check my music because <laughs> I'd never heard anyone do it. And I thought maybe that's even better than what I had done. Why didn't anyone think to do it before? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I asked her about it. She said it just fit her tessitura better. That's why she changed it. 
So then I made a note on my website, like if anybody wants to sing it this way instead of that way, that's fine with me. It may even be better, you know, <laughs> but uh, you're always learning or at least yeah. I, I am always learning from my performers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do that all the time as well. I always find myself having to edit my score after I rehearse it for the first time with the performers. And I love it when the performers are committed and constantly asking me questions, giving me feedback. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually revising all of my scores. It's a very, it's a multi-year process because wow. my notation at the start was terrible. You know, <laughs> it was just awful. I'm amazed that anyone could have made sense out of any of it, but they did. <laughs> Is that your pandemic passion project? No, no, my pandemic project <laughs> was finishing uncovered, and then I have two upcoming CDs. That are com- coming out uh, that I had recorded over the last three years, and um, it's a big, big accomplishment and a big project. And um, the next two are going to be with Aces Productions, which mm-hmm. is at, out of DC, and with Jeffrey Silver. And Jeffrey and Aces had produced Stephen Powell's uh, CD that I'm on, American Composers at Play, which is up for a Grammy for Best Classical Solo Vocal. Wow, congrats. Yeah, so we'll find out. I think it's March 15th they've moved the Grammys to. Mm-hmm. I have one other commission song, and then I'm not accepting any other commissions for a while because I want to go back and finish my other opera in progress, Ludlow, mm-hmm. which I have literally not touched in a decade. It's with David Mason again, and it is about immigration and the way we treat immigrants is seen through the lens of the 1914 Colorado mining town disaster known as the Ludlow Massacre. I feel it's an important story to tell and I want to I wanna do it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about upcoming projects and where we can find you. Well, you can always find me at artsongs.com. Upcoming, well, Indianapolis Opera, hopefully April 2021 with a staged production of my oratorio Vedem, which is going to be presented in a double bill with uh, Hans Cross's Brindabar. Summer of 2022, there's Steamboat Opera, Opera Steamboat, sorry, presenting The Three Feathers, my fairy tale opera with Dana Joya. There's um, Uncovered, which is going to be April 2022, and then subsequently in New York, and then in Florida, and a couple of other places. So the release of the first of my two CDs that I'm releasing back to back will be at the end of May. But okay. thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Thank you so much, Laurie. It's been wonderful. I've really enjoyed hearing about your process, your story, and your journey into composition. Thank you. And it's been lovely to discover your music. And I look forward to hearing more of it and following you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, And thank you, YSM community, for simply listening. Join me next week for a conversation with cellist Inval Segev. Until then, be well.